Esther chapter 4, only six points to my sermon today, so, you know, doing better, trimming it down a little bit. Thank you, thank you. Esther chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Get back into trust. Uh, Again, if you weren't here last week or you you didn't get to watch us online yet, um, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, there we go. Now I'm where I'm supposed to be in my Bible. If you didn't get to, to, to see what we're doing right now, Get Back In is the series title, uh, Making Discipleship a Habit Again. That's the, the, the tagline. That's what we're looking at. We're looking at those things that because of what has happened in the past year, maybe even a little longer, some, some habits that we've gotten out of, some places where we struggle, maybe, maybe not, maybe the, the, the circumstances of life have pushed you into deeper discipleship and not out of. If that's the case for you, that is incredible and wonderful and awesome, and it probably kind of makes you in the minority at this point. Um, at least if, if you've gotten like all the things done and, and not just a couple of them. And there were some, if, if you remember last week, I told you there were some 9, 10, 11 different uh, areas of discipleship that we could come up with uh, to, to get back in to, but I only had four Sundays to preach it because I only wanted to do this in February. Um, so uh, I went to the scripture first with those 9 or 10, 11 ideas in mind, those disciplines in mind, and said, what, does our, what do our D group passages say to any of these nine? And then and so this week, it fell to primarily Esther, I think. I mean, we may have read some other places. Uh, got my notes here. Uh, but, but primarily, we were in Esther reading that story. And get back into trust. Where if you've, if you've been in church any length of time, you are probably at least somewhat familiar with the story of Esther. Uh, so I'm not going to, I will go over it a little bit uh, as we uh, get into this, but uh, hold on, I've got to open the correct sermon notes I had last week's. I could preach all ten again if you want me to, uh, but I figured we'd just move ahead. Uh, this past year has uh, seen us endure, uh, I don't know what word you would want to use there, we've, we'll just put it this way, we've seen a tremendous erosion of trust recently, uh, especially in the last year. I think we could go back even longer than that. Now, there, there, actually, there's another side to that coin. We've actually seen an increase in trust provided the person is saying what we already believe to be true. Oh, we trust them implicitly, but if they're saying something that we don't believe or don't agree with, then, then we don't trust them. And it has been a, I think it's been a gradual thing uh, we've gotten here uh, uh, by a number of different paths. Uh, hashtag fake news, right? Uh, politicians, scientists, uh, whoever, local, national, friends, colleagues, we don't trust. And it seems particularly in the church. If you read what Barna is putting out in pew polls and those sorts of things, 
the church is trusting less and less and less. And, and there's a good argument for maybe that's not such a bad thing that we don't trust the world and the culture very much. But I'm going to go the opposite direction and say that it's creating more problems than it is solving. In fact, clergy aren't immune to the whole problem with trustworthiness. Uh, January 21st, uh, LifeWay Research came out with, well, reported on what I believe was a Barna poll uh, to, to find out who Americans trust the most, who is most trust, uh, trustworthy when, when, when Americans are asked. Number one, nurses. Lacey. And some former retired nurses. I wasn't just picking out the one, but, you know, there, we have, a, have two or three. I, 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 it, that's the problem. If I ever mention a name, somebody's, well, why didn't you mention so-and-so? That's just the one I thought of, okay? Just. Number two is doctors. Number three is, is grade school teachers. Number four is pharmacists. Number five is police officers. 52%. Now, that, that percentage there is actually... Those uh, is the combination of people who ranked that group very trustworthy or trustworthy. And, and, and I think there was a middle one and then there was a not and a not. Uh, uh, very not and not. So, um, so police officers, like half and half. Next, judges, 43% of the population trusts, really trusts judges. Clergy, 39% of the population finds clergy very trustworthy or trustworthy. Now, if you've been keeping up with Christian news uh, the last week, but the last few years with social media, with, with instant news, uh, we're hearing more about problems with clergy, with ministers, Robbie Zacharias, if you've kept up with that at all, and, and his uh, abuse of women over the years, and it just, it's no wonder, right? But, hold on, we, clergy did beat out a few folks. We beat out nursing home operators, bankers, journalists, I'm giving these in order, lawyers, business executives, advertising practitioners, 10% of the population considers them very trustworthy or trustworthy. Next is car salespeople, and then at 8%, and then they tied with members of Congress at 8%. Obviously, that is a clergy problem. That's much less of a trust problem than it is a clergy problem that only 39% of the population really trusts the people who are tasked, are called to present God's word to them. That's tragic. Because if the people in the pews don't trust the guy preaching, then the concern is that you don't trust what he's preaching about. 
and actually that's where I'm headed with this, is our lack of trust in society in general across the board, but especially our lack of trust in clergy damaging our trust in God. And I would say that there's no way that it doesn't. I have no evidence of that. I I have no, no more research that says, and that leads to, this is purely anecdotal. But I think it's damaging our relationship with God. I think it's damaging our trust in God. the, The question to ask is, is our skepticism healthy? Again, I think the argument can be made for Christians in a fallen world to be skeptical of a lot of what comes out, a lot of what we are told. We get that. If it doesn't comport with Scripture, then we don't accept it. But there are a lot of things we are skeptical of, do not trust, do not believe, that have zero, zero to do with Scripture. And so that's a question we need to ask. As a matter of fact, there's a a larger discussion here to be had about truth. There's not a your truth and a my truth. There is truth, and then there's falsehood. There's our understanding of the truth. There may be our interpretation of the truth. There may be a, uh, a lack of knowledge of truth, but truth is truth. And all truth is God's truth. There's a long conversation and maybe even a sermon to be had about that, but not this morning. I believe we need to get back into trust. Esther gives us that picture, and I'm, I'm really not talking about trusting people necessarily here, though I think that there's a sense where we have to be gracious to people and trust but verify might be a, a good way to approach that. I'm talking specifically about God. Have we let our skepticism about the world affect our trust in God. Excuse me. Esther 4 gives us a picture here of what trust in God looks like. Let me remind you that the book of Esther never mentions God. Not one time. His name is not found there. There's one verse, and I can't remember which verse it is now. Uh, it's kind of a, uh, a, turn, a turning point in the, in the book, and I can't remember exactly where it is. Um, but in Hebrew, the first four words of that sentence have the four letters in Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. And there are some that would say, oh, see, that's code there, so God was in there. Yeah, that's a stretch. Let's, we're not going to go there this morning. We're, we're going to say that that's you know, a happy coincidence. God's not mentioned, yet God is all over this book because it's a book about trust. Persia ha- has taken over uh, Babylon. I, I guess actually Persia has taken over from the Medes, if I remember my history correctly. The Medes took Babylon, and then Persia took Babylon from the Medes, and now the Jews are vassals of Persia, and various kings have come and gone, 
And now we come to the king Artaxerxes. It's, he's got a name Ahasuerus in here in different places. In some places they call him Artaxerxes. He has a queen. He has a party. He calls the queen out. Hey, come show everybody how pretty you are. Uh, she was not wearing her finest gown uh, when she came out. That was not what he was trying to show off. Uh, most likely she was wearing her crown. That's it. And she says no. I ain't playing your games, and you can't not go when the king summons you. You can't not do what the king tells you to. So she gets banished. Uh, she's lucky she didn't get killed, but she gets banished, and he needs a new king. And there's a, I'm sorry, new queen. And uh, there's a search throughout the land, and Esther, a young Jewish girl who was adopted by her uncle Mordecai, gets picked from the Jews, except nobody knew she was a Jew, and she was beautiful, and she uh, pleased the king, and so she becomes queen. Mordecai has this enemy in the king's court named Haman. Haman doesn't like Mordecai, and because he doesn't look like Mordecai, he doesn't like any of the Jews. He gets the king to pass a law that says, on this date, all the Jews will be killed, and that's where we come to the story now in chapter 4. Mordecai is, is uh, mourning, weeping. Esther doesn't realize what's going on. He says, this is what's happened. All of our people are going to be killed, and you will be too. And that's where we pick it up here in Esther chapter 4. I'm just going to read the whole chapter to you. Actually, you read it with me. It'll be on the screen, or if you brought a copy of God's Word with you, it should be there as well. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city, and cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict came. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who attended her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction. Susa was the capital city of Persia. So that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Hathak came and reported Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, hold on, how many of y'all th always thought that Mordecai and Esther had the conversation? Like, I, maybe Veggie Tales told us that. Uh, I know that was part of it. I just always thought, I, I, I literally think it was this reading of Esther that I realized, wait a minute. It was through a mediator. It was a messenger the whole time. That has nothing to do with the sermon. It was just one of those things when you read the Bible all your life and then read it again, you still find stuff. So here we go. I don't even know where I was now. Don't think. Here we go. Verse 13. Nope. Verse 10. Verse 11. 
All the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty, unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants, servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. So I, I see six points. I told you it was fewer than ten. I didn't tell you how many fewer. Six points here, six ways that Esther shows us that we can get back in to trust. Or maybe I should say uh, six circumstances in which we should trust regardless, even when things don't look right. The first one is when we're faced with insurmountable odds. We see insurmountable odds in verses 1 through 3. He, Mordecai has given up. There, there's, there's no way that, there, that, that, that they can stop this on paper. There's no plan that works. Once a king has made a decree, even the king can't reverse it. We saw that with uh, Darius and, and Daniel in the lion's den. He couldn't take it back. Once he realized, wait a minute, this is going to mess up Daniel... I can't take it back. He had to put Daniel in the lion's den, and he hated to do it. Over and over we see that, especially with these uh, near, uh, Middle Eastern kings. They could not, even the kings couldn't undo their own decrees. Now, you'll have to read the rest of Esther to see how they, he, he gets out of this decree. We're not getting into that this morning, and I encourage you to do it. But there's just no way that the Jews come out of this. It's not possible. It, the, the, the decree is everybody in every town gets to go out and kill any Jew they see. And that's, that's the decree. So it is every, not just Persians, but every vassal state that Persia now has in every city, in every part of the territory, they all get to go and kill any Jews that are there. And most likely, as in other times and other places, other situations, the Jews probably already all kind of lived together, especially when you were a, a country that was taken over and uh, deported or imported, actually, into a country. You kind of stuck together. It, we just watched uh, Fiddler on the Roof here this last week. Uh, again, we've seen it before. Some of the, the, the kids hadn't. And that's what you saw there in that Russian town. The, the Jews had their community. And it would have been the same at this time. So it had been real easy for the entire city to, to gather and kill that group of people. The odds of getting out of this, it just it wouldn't happen. C-3PO would, would 
would say, well, these are the odds. And, and, and uh, Mordecai would have said, never tell me the odds, right? Because you don't want to know the Thank you, Star Wars people, for getting that. Um, it just, it, 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 it was not going to work. So I asked this question of you listening today and whenever. You thought the Christian life would mean smooth passage? Did you? Because it doesn't. The odds are insurmountable. So much so that Jesus said, in this world, you might, you could, it's some possibly maybe going to kind of happen that. I think he used a pretty determinative word, right? He said, in this world, you will have suffering. You will have trouble. The expectation for the believer, for the church of Jesus Christ, is that we will suffer for the gospel. There's another sermon here that questions if we're not suffering, are we really living for the gospel? But we're not going to get into that this morning. We're just going to talk about that the expectation is suffering. So what do we do? The odds are insurmountable. We can't win. We're, we're driving, you know, we're, we're in a NASCAR race on a tricycle. Not going to happen. We're not going to make it. We're not going to make it around the track once. Maybe our odds are a little better. Maybe we're in a minivan. All right, at least we can drive, you know, 80 miles an hour, whatever. It, it, it's, it's not going to work, though. We don't win in the world. Therefore, we trust. That's all we can do. Have the odds seemed insurmountable this year? Do they still seem insurmountable? I told you about some of the, the insurance issues that, you know, we, we, with the church, we, we go along and things are kind of sort of beginning to click a little bit, and then wham, there's... Oh, shoot, now what? Okay, we got that fixed. All right, we're ready to go. Wham, we get hit again. It just seems like every time we move along, something jumps in the way. Therefore, we trust. When faced with insurmountable odds, we trust. Number two, when no one else trusts. When no one else trusts. Uh, four, four through seven. They, they came and reported the news to the queen, and actually this goes back to verse three. Uh, really, it kind of blends over here. It's not a hard delineation on any of these. You kind of get the feel of all of this throughout the chapter. Everybody, all the Jewish people were mourning. They were fasting and weeping and lamenting. And Mordecai is uh, on the front step. And he's, he's in sackcloth and ashes and mourning. And Esther is blissfully ignorant of what's going on. And she sends him clothes and he won't take them. And everybody else, everybody has given up. Everybody has given in. 
The people mourned, Esther feared, and Mordecai sat in the dirt. You thought everybody would be optimistic? You thought everybody would look around and go, this is fine. You know, I think of the memes on, on the interwebs, and it's the little dog sitting there drinking coffee, and the whole room's on fire around him, and he's going, this is fine. It's a dumpster fire, y'all. It's not fine. Things aren't fine. Our heat is struggling to keep us warm in this room because it's nearly 30 degrees outside, and we got no insulation. Things aren't fine. And most people will expect the worst. Most people will look around and say, there's no overcoming this. Most people will look at our budget and say, there's no way we can do the ministry we're called to with the people we have and the money we have. There's just no way. Therefore, we trust. When no one else trusts, we trust. When the world has no hope, the church trusts. Going back to Fiddler on the Roof, they had three days to get out of their town once uh, the czar issued his decree. It was around 1906, 1907, right before the uh, Bolshevik Revolution. when, once the czar issued the decree, they had three days to get out. And at first they were angry. And, at first, and, and they were, oh, we're going to, some said, we'll fight. And some said, we'll do this. Some said, and finally they just said, we've been wandering for years. What's new? And they go and they pack their stuff in the carts and they, they leave. It's just, that's, that's the world. Uh, it's just going to happen. That's what. We don't approach it that way as a church, as a people of God. We trust. When no one else trusts, we trust. Number three, when the authorities are against you. Verses 8 and 9, we could have said world, we could have said authorities, we could have said culture, we could have said government. We could have put any word there for authorities, but I just put authorities Mordecai gives Hathak the, the, uh, a copy of the written decree and, and says, here, Esther, this is, this is what it is. This, everybody here is against us. Xerxes, or, or, or rather Artaxerxes, he doesn't care one way or the other. He just likes power. He's got people underneath him that do care one way or the other, but they also like power. So the authorities were not going to come to bat for the Jewish people. There wasn't a public official, I left out a, a word there, uh, uh, a public official that cared about the Jewish people. Not one, save Esther, who really wasn't a public official. She was a trophy piece. That's all she was. She had no power. She had no authority. The authorities will be against us. You thought worldly kings would benefit a heavenly kingdom? One of the worst things that happened to the church was the Holy Roman Empire. Constantine making Christianity the official religion. 
And then for a thousand years or so, there was oppression by the church. You had things like the Spanish Inquisition. You had things like uh, coming to new lands and saying, Hi, we're here to take your money, take your land, and tell you about Jesus in that order. By the way, if you don't accept Jesus, we kill you. So, you know, you might want to back up one and just do the three. And that is what Christendom, Christianity does when it is blended and melded with the authorities. That's the way it works. That's the way it always works. The authorities want authority. They want to keep that authority. They want that power. And there was nothing that could have changed that authority for Esther, for Mordecai, for the Jewish people. There was nothing they could do to go to the king and say, hey, could you rewind a little bit back and, and fix this? No, it's not going to happen. The authorities were against them. The church won't ever and should never be accepted by the culture or government. If the church is accepted by the authorities, whomever the authorities may be, the church is doing something wrong. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said. If they treated me this way, if they treat the, treat the teacher this way, how much more are they going to treat the, the students? If they treat the master this way, how much more are they going to treat the, the servants the same way? And we, we want to be treated nicely. And we want to have influence in the halls of power. And it will never, ever, and should never, ever happen. And if we can never have the authority, if we can never have the power, well, Michael, what should we do then? We should trust we should trust the one that told us you're not going to have the power. Y'all, my kingdom is not of this world. Don't worry about the, the, the army. Don't worry about the battle. Don't worry about me. Now is your time to take over, Jesus. No, that is, if, if I wanted to take over, I could have taken over, Jesus said. If I wanted an earthly kingdom, I could have had it. He could have had it the day Satan said, just bow down to me and all this is yours. Could have had it. It's not why I'm here. It's not why my people are here. My people are here for another kingdom. We are ambassadors. We are messengers from another land. This world is not our home. We are here to share the message of Jesus, regardless of what the authorities say about us. Whether we have religious liberty or we don't have religious liberty where we are accepted in the halls of government or aren't accepted in the halls of government, whether the media complex likes us or whether they don't like us, whether they mock us or whether they celebrate us, none of that matters because we have one calling, we have one kingdom, and we trust. Number four, the fourth situation, when there's no good option. Verses 10 through 12, Esther, having heard what Mordecai's plan is, hey, you've got to do something, Esther. Esther says, I can't. If I go to the king, 
The, the, the rule is, if you go to the king without being summoned, he kills you. There's the off, maybe, possibly, but not going to happen chance that he extends his scepter and everything's okay, and you get to talk to him. But that just doesn't happen. He kills the people that show up. The dude likes to kill people. Okay? And this is a good reason, a good excuse to do it, if I show up. There were no good options because her options were either to wait and die or do something and die. If I wait, the king kills everybody and I die. If, if, if I go talk to him, the king kills me, then he kills everybody and we all die. Where's the good option? Die early, die late. There wasn't one. Esther's options all resulted in her death. So I ask you, you thought obedience would always lead to a comfortable ending? How many of you have ever spoken or thought, and you don't have to raise your hand, God, why did it turn out this way? I was obedient. I did what you said. I'll raise my hand. God, I did what you said. Why was this the result of my obedience? This looks worse than what would have happened if I hadn't been obedient. Ever been there? Ever thought, wait a minute. I thought my obedience would get me out of the frying pan. And it did. But I didn't get to the side of the stove. I'm in the fire. Right? I am, I, this, is, this is not what I thought obedience would get me. God, I was expecting a happy ending. I wanted, and they lived happily ever after. I wanted, and everybody was saved at the end. I wanted something, not, and the world blew up and nobody was there anymore. Or some crazy ending like that. God, that's not what I wanted. You thought obedience would always lead to that happy, comfortable ending. There's no promise Things will be fine. And let me tell you, as a pastor, number four is my hardest one. Okay? Number four is the most difficult one. Because hopefully, as a pastor, you expect, and I expect, that I am leading according to God's will. That I am praying about things, that I'm consulting with other godly people, staff, leaders in the church. We're talking about things, we're, we're making plans, and we're doing the best we can to lead in a godly manner. To be obedient with what God is telling us to do. And you know what could happen? Horrible things. At least what we would call horrible things. You know, that we, we may very well, we've, we've been very open about the budget and the, the, the problems with it and the, the, the struggles we have right now. We very well could get to the point where much of our savings is gone, there has been no growth in our church, and the nuclear options have to be initiated anyway. And then I get to hear... Well, we spent all that money for nothing. We should have saved that money and gone with the nuclear options sooner. You know what? I started to say maybe you're right, but I don't feel that way. I don't believe that. I don't believe that we are being disobedient moving forward. But if you've, I'm, I'm, tr I'm trying not to 
you know, be too explicit here. I'm talking in generalities just so that there's no, well, Michael said this in the sermon, you know. We discussed this at the business meeting. We discussed the two options that we have moving forward, and neither one's good. I think we could all nod about that. Neither looks like a great option. Neither looks like the option has a happy ending. And you know what? They might not. There's no promise things will be fine. You know what we do? We trust. We trust. When there's no good option, we trust. When there's no good option, it leads to number five, but when the decision must be made. Because not doing anything is a decision, right? If you decide to do nothing, you've decided. When the decision must be made. Verses 13 and 14. Esther came to a point where she had to decide. An option had to be chosen. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that this is all going to work out fine if you do nothing. Now see, Mordecai has this little bit of trust here, right? We'll be rescued regardless of what you do, Esther. Hear that faith? We, we jump to the next verse. We jump to the end of, uh, end of 14, and we... And we, we we hang out on uh, for such a time as this. Esther, you're in this position for such a time as this to, to rescue us. If we go back a verse, we see that Mordecai had faith. He trusted that something was going to work out, whether it was Esther or not. I like that faith. That's the kind of faith I, I try to have. And some days I have it, and some days not so much. But he trusted. But it came time for Esther to decide. What is she going to do? Go to the king and maybe die? Nah, let's say go to the king and probably die. Do nothing and definitely die. And it's decision time. And if she says, I can't make a decision, well, she's decided. She's not going. So the decision is made. We as a church, we as believers, are put in that same position. Frankly, to continue the discussion about the budget. Stewardship committee, personnel committee, staff, and now deacons have all looked at it and said, well, we can't not do anything. Both options are bad. So which option gives us the best hope for maybe a good outcome, provided the Lord provides and blesses abundantly our obedience. You thought every choice in obedience would be crystal clear? You thought, when I'm going to follow Jesus now, so that tomorrow when I have to decide between A and B, it's going to be, I mean, like uh, brass band and ticker tape, a is the choice, and, and, and B over here, it's going to be like devils dancing around it in flames, and oh, clearly that's a horrible choice. That would not be where God wants me. It must be A. No, I think they're going to come in uh, basically 
cardboard boxes wrapped in brown paper, no distinguishing characteristics, most often, no distinguishing characteristics, nothing that says, obviously this is the right choice and obviously this is the wrong choice. It's going to be, Lord, what in the world do I do here? And he's going to tell you, and then you're going to say, okay, well, did I hear that right? Are you sure? Because the right decision will often be the harder one. Esther could have chosen to do nothing. I'm going to trust. See, we can misuse that word. If I remember correctly, sometime before the hurricane, I, I preached a message about when, when faith is disobedience. I'm, oh, it was Paul and, and Acts, and some of y'all still disagree with me on, on that. That's okay. Sometimes our trust is misplaced. Sometimes we're placing trust in our decision more than in the one who told us to make the decision. Sometimes we're saying, Lord, I'm not going to do anything here, and I'm just going to trust you to work it out. And that is not what he has called us to do. When that really isn't even an option, because again, you are making a decision. You say I'm, I'm not choosing when in fact you actually are choosing. And I believe, and this is also anecdotal, I don't necessarily have scripture to back it up, nor do I have some big research program from Lifeway, but I do believe that the right decision will often be the harder decision to make. It's just very rare when we follow in obedience that that's the easy path. just doesn't happen very often. Not saying it doesn't sometimes. And not saying that sometimes it isn't easy to make the hard decision. Right? It, sometimes it's, it is actually, between the two decisions, it is crystal clear. This would be easier, but I've got to violate some biblical standards, some, some callings on my life as a believer in order to make that happen. This violates nothing. As a matter of fact, this choice is clearly commanded in Scripture. I know I have to do this. This, though, is the harder one. That's the easier one, but it's just no contest, I know. Those choices are rare. They just don't come that often. Sometimes it's, it's, it's A, horrible, and, and, and uh, A minus, horrible. And you're looking at the two going, those are almost the same, which, I mean, the result is nearly the same. What in the world should I do? Or if the results are two totally different things, but they are still equally as horrible. What do I do? We trust. Well, Michael, you sure are saying that a lot. You sure are making it sound easy. Well, I'm failing in my job if I am. There's nothing easy about this. But it is the calling. It is what we're supposed to do. So when the decision must be made, we trust. Number six, when the decision is made. Our final situation. Verses 15 through 17. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jew Jews. Uh, uh, fast for me. Uh, don't eat or drink, 
will do the same, then I will go to the king, even if, against, if it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Esther made the decision. She realized that, to not, choo- uh, that not to choose was to choose. She realized she had no control of the outcome either way. If I go to the king, I've got no control of the outcome. If I don't go to the king, I've got no control of the outcome. So she made her choice, and that was the only piece of control she had. What she would do in the situation. How she would handle the situation. And this question goes, takes us back to one earlier. You thought... God would guarantee the result you want just because you're obedient. Oh, I'm red on here, so I guess the battery went dead. Lord, I want this outcome to happen. Therefore... I'm going to be obedient to you, and then it will happen, correct? No, incorrect. False, Dwight would say. Y'all, we're not called to outcomes. We're not called to get what we want. We're not even called to get what we think is right. We're certainly not called to get what we think is best. We're called to obedience. Now, it it would have been a a completely different book of the Bible if it hadn't worked out in the Jews' favor. If Esther had gone to the king and the king said, I didn't call you, Esther. Kill her. (laughs) But that would have still been God's sovereignty over that situation. And he would have done something and maybe it would not have involved saving that particular, uh, the, the, the Jews at that time. Or it would have been a different way that he did it. I don't know. We can't speculate on that. All we can know for certain is that Esther was obedient. We know that we have to be obedient. And that we should be obedient regardless of what God chooses for the outcome. But Michael, what if, what if I can see the outcome? What if I know that my obedience will lead to my death? What if Christians in World War II had not hidden Jews from the Nazis. Well, there have been a lot of Christians that would have lived. Would not have been put in concentration camps along with the people they were trying to save. They knew what the outcome was. Michael, what if, but, but what about, well, I'll ask not me, uh, you, what about the missionaries that go to the, the 1040 window between the latitude of 10 and, and 40, the where the lostness is most extreme in our world, where to be a Christian will get you killed, and yet they go. 
What is the guaranteed result of that, especially if they're found to be Christian missionaries? Death. How, how, what do they, how do they do that, Michael? How do we, how do we move through when the decision is made, when we have no control of the outcome? trust. It's all we can do. And this year has kicked our tails and told us we can't trust anything. We certainly can't trust the weather. We go from two hurricanes to snow and ice in southwest Louisiana. The hurricanes we can deal with. All right, I mean, we're, we're familiar with those. Snow and ice in Lake Charles? Once every 50 years or something like that. This is not our, our forte here. Can't trust that. We can't, we can't trust that. We can't trust insurance companies. We, we, we can't trust contractors. Anybody from Paul Davis, if y'all are watching, you're doing a wonderful job. I'm not talking about you. You can't trust politicians. You can't trust the media. You can't trust Hollywood. You can't trust your clergy. You can't trust anybody Except nurses. We trust y'all. So what do we do? We trust God. We trust God. We're obedient. We make the best decision we can with the information we have according to prayerful deliberation. And we trust God. Because, whose church is it? Is it mine? Is it yours? Is it the deacons? Is it the committees? Is it the church members? It's Jesus' church. He died for it. You didn't. I didn't. He bled for it. You didn't and I didn't. He saved it. You didn't and I didn't. Nobody loves the church more than Jesus. And so we trust. Now, maybe you need to trust Jesus for salvation today. Maybe that's the trust you need to have. All this talk of trusting in God and trusting with decisions and outcomes, etc., etc., that is hollow and meaningless without a relationship with God through Jesus Christ without salvation, without forgiveness of your sins, because you're not his child. You're not God's child until you're adopted through the vicarious, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And you, you receive that salvation by, we say, by faith, which is kind of a synonym for trust. Only trust him, we say. Place your faith and trust in Jesus the evangelists will say. We start with the fact that we need that because we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We all need salvation. We've all broken God's law. And the wages of those sin is death because that is who we are. That is what we do. We have earned the punishment of hell. But God, in His grace, in His mercy, provided the way out. His gift was eternal life, but not just a blanket guarantee, not just an everybody gets it, uh, you, you know, 
know, Oprah, you get salvation, you get salvation, everybody gets salvation, but instead a trust in Jesus Christ. God loves you, every one of you. And I'm not just talking about believers, I'm talking about everyone. God loves you, all of you. And he proved that by sending Jesus to die long before we ever knew anything about him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And because he loves you, and you, and, and you, and you, and you, and you, all of you, all of you then can call on him for salvation. Every one of you. It does not matter your sinfulness. It does not matter your life story. It does not matter where you are at this very moment. You can call on Jesus to save you. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the promise. That's the calling. That's the obedience. And that is the ultimate trust. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for your gift of salvation for all of us. God, thank you that you lead your church, you lead your people, you guide us. In the midst of, of options that get us to bad and very bad, with no choice that seems good, you are there. You have a plan, you have a will, we have an obedient direction, and Lord, we can trust. And I know, Lord, right now, for, for some of us, maybe even for a lot of us, trust is hard. We don't see the outcome we think there should be. We don't, we don't understand what we're going through. We don't know why it is like what it is. We don't know any of these options. Nobody trusts around us. The, the situation is horrible. It's not supposed to be this way. God, why are we here like this? All we can do is trust. But God, that is all we need to do. And that is the beauty of it. The, the only thing we can do is the only thing we need to do. Yes, God, we have decisions to make. We, we know that you've got a path for us. You've placed a direction and, and, and we need to be obedient and be listening to you. But when the decision is made, we trust. And I thank you for the gift of trust. Because some days the only way I have it is because you give it to me. So in this time of worship, Lord, I, I pray that maybe there's someone here or listening, watching online that, that needs to respond in trust today to, to Jesus for salvation. Maybe there's someone here this morning or watching that needs to return to trust in you. Maybe there's someone who has allowed the world to create such skepticism in their hearts they begin to even wonder about you. 
God, I pray for a time of renewal. I pray for a time of conversation between you and some folks. Me too. And God, I pray that we as a church, we as a people, as individuals, that we will get back in to trust today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we sing, maybe you want to turn around and kneel at your chair. Maybe you want to come up here and pray. That's fine. Uh, I believe Tom and Amy will be at the back this morning. Uh, if you would like to have someone pray with you, they would love to do that. Uh, if you'd like to discuss some things after the service, we'd love to do that with you as well. Maybe just where you are as you worship. You need to talk to God about some things, and that's what this time is for. So let's stand and sing. Let's let him gift us this morning with trust as we do business with him today. Mm -hmm.